It's the Daydream Cast with all of your friends. With Brogan and Murph, the fun never ends. Also, Vaughn is here. <laughs> wow, that was great. I love that. Are are we replacing the Jack theme? Uh, no, that's just supplemental. It's like. Do you yeah, want it before like the... or after the Jack theme? Uh. in the middle of your explanation for the to, to the jack theme and now we're back uh so we've got with us uh vaughn from i'm thinking of spoiling things yeah that's me that's probably where people know me from we've had you on the show murph to talk about prey recently uh-huh i was in the grab bag special it's true and now i'm now i'm here on the daydream cast yeah do you, yeah do, what video games do you play this is what i care about uh ooh, that's a good question i play all kinds of stuff i've obviously i've played uh kind of less and less unfortunately as my life has become consumed by movies but yeah name uh, every game i'm just kidding. <laughs> um he plays no. movie adaptations <laughs> i just saw the other day there's a game that was apparently based on uh argento's phenomena so i gotta figure that out um there was uh th- there was clock tower one we already did an yeah. episode on that Oh, really? Well, I'll have oh, to play yeah, yeah. That, that was a Pablo's era episode. Check it out, viewers. Anyways, continue. <laughs> um, no, I, I, uh, I play all kinds of stuff. I'd say I probably gravitate. I gravitate more um, modern, especially these days, because I like to just kind of have mindless, relaxing stuff to play. So, you know, a lot of uh, shooters and stuff I played. Um, not as much recently, but was a big fan of especially the original destiny and played quite a lot of destiny 2 as well the looter shooter style kind of thing um but i've certainly also played my fair share of uh, of indie stuff i like a lot of that as well try and find where uh, the fun new stuff is um i've played far what? too much binding of isaac gotcha what 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 are you really looking for are you looking for something that like when you say Destiny and Binding of Isaac, are you looking for things that sort of build on each other and just like you're working towards getting better at the game? Are you looking for just like sit down, turn your brain off experience? Or what, what exactly do you look for in games nowadays? I would say nowadays in particular, it is, it's sort of a combination of those things, I guess. Like I like when I can just sort of turn my brain off and play, but I also like stuff that feels like I am making progress and building something out of that so that's why i definitely gravitate towards stuff like that where you get to sort of create something and and build an experience of your own even if you are kind of playing mindlessly yeah i I have a question as an expert on spoiling things is the referendum for spoiling video games different for the referendum on spoiling movies i think definitely um it is tough, though. There's a tough line to draw in terms of spoiling video games. I think video games are so much harder to ever really have a good grasp on where people are at, especially when you talk about recently released stuff. It's so hard like 
to know because with a movie it releases recently and the people that are going to see it are going to see it and it's just a couple hours and it's it's easy to digest but some people can spend hundreds and hundreds of hours with a game before they're really comfortable talking about it you know so it's hard to yeah hard to find I, out and, and on top of that i mean this may actually go into you're laying the groundwork with 5d chess murph because this goes <laughs> into our topic of the week legend of zelda link to the past which we'll go over later but i think there's sometimes where spoiling things is part of a communal experience regarding um the game itself so like some people would spend 200 hours playing a game, not talk to anybody, finish it, then talk to somebody. Or people spend hours and hours playing and then they go out to work or their schoolyard and they talk to their friends and go, hey, did you know that there's a fucking cave that gives you this cool staff? And I'm like, no. And then you're like, yeah, you should go check it out. And then you go check it out and then bada bing, bada boom, you know? Yeah. Well, I'm just thinking that a lot of games spoil themselves in promotion, and I mean that mostly in terms of, like, the game mechanics. You know, it's it's very difficult to find a game now where you, like, not even just searching the dev's YouTube page, you can learn everything about every mechanic in the game. That's really and true. I, I think especially, like, that also has kind of become more of a backfiring thing the past few years, because devs will set ex expectations to a point where they can't live up to them, and then people are disappointed. Are, are mm -hmm. we also lampshading? Because I was going to talk about it next time because I haven't had a chance to play it. Are we lampshading the scorn discourse here? Because oh, uh, is there is there scorn discourse? Oh, yes, there is. is. Yes, one hundred percent. Because um, because contrary to what you said, I guess specifically for this, there was an important aspect of the game left out. People assumed it was one thing and they got another. People thought it was more combat heavy. Yes, yes. I take it. Mm. Yes. I, I always got the impression it was just an atmospheric puzzler with, like, combat is an aspect of the puzzle, kind of like Portal. I, I, I was under the impression that it was um, a lighter Half-Life. Mm. Like, it was more into the set dressing, but there is still some combat. And there is apparently still combat, but it is much more like mist, but eventually you get a gun. <laughs> okay, okay, I'm kind <laughs> of sold on that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we'll talk about it next time when I actually give a chance to play it. But anyways. Well, in terms of games you've played recently, Vaughn, uh, you've you've played that arcane shooter. What with the with the time loop? Yeah, I've been playing Deathloop. It just got added to Game Pass, which is the most of the way I, you know, end up getting games these days. But, okay. Um, my, my guess was that you were subscribed to the... Uh, humble monthly because that's the game of the month for the humble bundle oh yeah that's true that's also a thing uh no i haven't been haven't been getting getting anything from humble for a while now um but yeah game pass is a good way to just play things as they get added to that so i started playing death loop i love dishonored a lot dishonored is one of my favorite games i never got through the second one actually it didn't grab me quite the same way but i was very interested in Deathloop having a similar aesthetic and a similar gameplay style um, because I think it, that game was always so fluid in the way that you could get through it and navigate everything. And I'm definitely a fan of the whole time loop idea and the concept of it, so this just seemed right up my alley. And I was saying, backpedaling to like our conversation on Scorn, Deathloop is one of those games where for a long time it seemed like a lot of people didn't really know how the game was supposed to work. Like they said, you're trapped in a time loop, but they never really expanded on what that meant mechanically. 
And then I remember when the game came out, a lot of people were disappointed that it was just more flavor. Does that yeah, seem to be the case for you? Definitely. I would say that's probably my biggest critique of it is I had the same feeling leading up to it um, and being interested in it before it released of like, I wasn't, I was very interested in what the trailers were presenting, but I couldn't really tell what the actual gameplay was. And it's definitely not quite what I was hoping for. I think the time loop aspect of it ends up getting really becoming really unimportant really fast it's basically just in world describing dying and respawning um, Uh which is fine but it also has mechanics where if you die a couple of times before the quote-unquote loop resets it just reverses time a few seconds and then you can stay alive and that like mid-game revival mechanic kind of takes a lot of the air out of the whole death being a time loop thing and so eventually the time loop is just like totally unimportant to the way you're playing it okay yeah that does sound disappointing i i've been meaning to install it because i'm subscribed to humble monthly so it's on my to-do list but i was always more intrigued at the time loop aspect and hearing that that's just set dressing is very disappointing to hear yeah it's it's definitely not quite what i was hoping for in that sense like most of the game is slowly progressing and then eventually you kind of have to die just to reset the loop and do more things because each loop is one day and you have you can only do certain things at certain times of the day in certain districts Mm, okay how does it feel like compared to dishonored i was surprised and disappointed that it felt so similar like it's almost too similar and i think i saw something recently that they're supposed to be in the same universe which sort of explains that a little bit more but as much as he said rolling his eyes (laughs) um as much as i love dishonored and was like excited to see more of that style like I was hoping for something that was a little bit more divergent in terms of the gameplay and there's so many mechanics that are just basically the same thing as dishonored i mean there's literally like a teleporting mechanic that is identical to the way that plays in Mm. dishonored and so eventually i was just like okay this gameplay is so similar that i'm wondering like what what the real reason is like what's the drive to have this exist as its own entity i'm 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 curious about one thing one thing that the what i was interested in and what i thought to me, at least the primary gimmick was that the additional player, the sort of weird multiplayer angle to it, um, does that actually affect gameplay ever? Or is this like not really a thing or what? It hasn't really to me so far. I would say I've probably played like 10, 15 hours maybe. Um, it hasn't really affected anything that I've noticed in any actual way. The way it kind of presented it was that there was like this ongoing cat and mouse between these two characters and it's really not that at all basically you when you go into the game you're forced to play as one player and you can't play as the antagonist until you beat the game and you're basically just playing the game normally and every once in a while i've only seen it once then a random multiplayer person will invade your world and you'll kind of duel them and then they're they're gone and that's it okay so so it's it's more obs- like more obfuscated than even Dark Souls Invasion style. So yeah, I get you. But it's sounding like from what you described earlier that death doesn't really have a consequence. So is it just the thrill of going up against another player temporarily, or is there like stakes? There's really not stakes. I mean, the only like 
Rill and that part is just like, oh, I get to fight someone now, but... It sounds like if they had actually committed to the the time loop idea, like, every time you die, you start right from the beginning with, like, your kill list, that would be exciting, but as it stands, this just sounds like a very flavorful, but typical first-person shooter. Yeah, it it really is. I mean, and there's they even remove more of the stakes from the death because they introduce a mechanic where you can infuse your gear and keep it after you die so it just gets more and more like now i'm just playing a game like any other game where that loop becomes less and less important and i don't find the different districts that incredibly unique so it's not that interesting in terms of that like those areas are not that huge and it presents it like there's so much to discover and so much to learn as you work your way through but it's really just going back through the same places over and over and going to a couple of different landmarks Mm. is the like the execution uh, because it's all about like your kill list but the visionaries are those at least satisfying to pull off like in dishonored or are they just like another enemy they're pretty satisfying I, i they each have kind of their own individual like thing and mechanic and like thing that they've invented and created that makes them unique and interesting to actually have a showdown with so that stuff is interesting and i will say because it is basically dishonored like the gameplay itself is still very enjoyable and those mechanics still work so it's still a fun game and it's visually interesting and the gameplay is enjoyable but it's like a lot of the stuff that's wrapped around it is just disappointing in terms of what i was hoping for all right well, speaking of disappointing first-person shooters, <laughs> uh, I played Overwatch Two. As you can tell by the tone of my voice, it was, I was so, super. I was. I'm super excited for it. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, the game sucks. <laughs> or, or yeah. To to better phrase it, it is literally the same exact game. Only it's as Overwatch One. Only it's harder to get into the game. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Um. I was very, uh, for a while, Overwatch was, like, the only game I played. I spent a shameful amount of money on loot boxes, seasonal loot boxes, uh, to get all the exclusive skins and stuff. Uh, But then I just, I really just fell off around the time they, like, introduced Hammond. That's about Um, the same time I quit. And that was also around, like, the uh, the Blizzard Hong Kong controversy. I just sort of made the moral decision to swear them off. Politically, Um, they are... uh evil yeah that's that's the word sure and (laughs) nothing um nothing about overwatch 2 seems worth compromising my morals over um well we all know i am a depraved maniac who will play something if it's free and it was free and it was exactly the same game i think uh to analyze um the okay let me be honest with the amount of content there actually is uh, there they took got rid of some maps. They kept some maps, but they changed the time of day they were in. So if it was a night stage, it's in the middle of the day. So it feels um like a coat of new paint. And mm-hmm. then there's like some new game modes and some new maps, but ultimately I don't like any of them. I feel like all of them, uh, the robot tug of war game type is I think really misses the mark. Um, in terms of how it functions, I would go into that another time, another place. Um, and the actual standard variant maps, they're like, you know, whatever. The new characters are interesting, but like this goes back to what I was saying before. It was like new maps, new characters, new skins. 
literally what's really changed honestly like all that stuff has happened before and now there's a 5v5 meta all this stuff happened under overwatch one overwatch one would revamp things add things all the time really the fundamental difference is a fucking seasonal pass instead of loot boxes so if that gets your goat then yes but i know why i quit so i'm i'm probably done i haven't played in like a few days so does the game finally have a story no no murph (laughs) no it is genuinely quite shocking how much it is just the same game. <laughs> that, okay, so in, in case you're wondering what happened to all the PvE stuff, they're saving it for later. What that means is they're just going to release the same archive shit once a year. They're they're not going to actually devote like all that wasted dev time onto like a full-on Destiny 2 style PvE thing. That's just, I don't think that's going to pan out ever. And they're going to just compromise because like, that's not going to make them money in the way that this is. So, yeah. It's just so weird because that was, like, to me, the only selling point is, like, hey, all those, like, that drip feed of, like, plot and lore through those beautifully done animated trailers they did. And it's like, oh, this is all building to something. This is all building to something you're going to play. And then it just didn't. It feels... Overwatch is such a weird property because, like, there's comics and things, but you can't get the comics anymore because they rewrote the lore. And it's like, it feels like it's all building up to a theoretical game, and this is just the side mode, you know? They don't, they don't actually have a plan for two years from now. It was, they were always very reactionary. That was one of my biggest complaints was how they added content and adjusted meta was really reactionary based on audience stuff rather than Mm -hmm. uh, a measured developer approach. Um, And man, yeah, it's just, it's just really sad to be like, oh, yeah, super hyped about what because Overwatch 2 was presented as like a sort of ambitious storyline focused co-op campaign experience. And then you could also interact with Overwatch as a multiplayer thing. Same as always. Then they gave up the interesting part and they kept the same as always. And they just put a two on it and then made everyone unable to play the original. So that way they forced it down their throats. At, at the very least, it's free, but hey, man, there's a lot of things that are free. Going outside and taking a walk is free, and I'd recommend yeah. that. That's great. Yeah, if the um, the market wasn't so obtrusive and toxic, I'd get back into Team Fortress 2, but... Yeah, I mean, I, I think as of now, we're not in a good place for class-based shooters like that. Um, yeah, Team Fortress 2 is also dead to me. Remember Bethesda's uh, class-based shooter? quake champions or whatever oh my god i actually played quite a bit of that don't get me started Murph. don't get me started we are not talking about quake champions i'm not talking about quake champions no i put time into that game and i'm upset by what happened okay all right so Murph. so you guys have you guys been playing your your corporate disappointments meanwhile i have been playing the best game okay tell us more about this best game so i've been playing a game called unicorn tales uh, the story about this game, the backstory, is that uh, like three dads in the UK wanted to make a game for their daughters that was like Skyrim but family friendly, and one of their daughters asked if if you could be a unicorn in it, so they did that, <laughs> and then they made it, they made it uh, available on Steam. Um, what this game gives me the 
vibes of is like ah, those really well-made like browser MMOs from the early to mid 2000s. Ooh, you're selling me, Murph. You're selling me. Like it just has this real sincere charm of it. Like I did liken it to something like Wolf Quest, if you ever played that back in the day. No. Or just like edutainment games that had weirdly high production values. It's got a bit of a, a humongous entertainment energy to some of it. Um, and what's really uh, good about it is like, I guess some voice actor who's also a streamer, like played it one evening for like a joke but then got really felt like fell in love with it. And so he got his voice actor friends together to voice act the entire game com- completely pro bono. Oh, so the entire awesome. game, the entire game just has professional level voice acting and all of them like understand the assignment. Um, so you run around, you make your unicorn, you can like choose uh, so many different colors. You can make the most garish neon abomination you want. I'm sold. Uh, um, the Daydream Cast stands Lisa Frank illustrations. I love that art. That's I yeah. want I want glitter on our posters. I want I want Ezra to design our graphic. De- I want her to be the Ooh. graphics design lead. Oh, you hear that, Calvin? Uh, <laughs> get on that. Give Ezra yeah. some markers. Yeah. Um, so you you you're, you wind up on Unicorn Island because you were trapped in a void bubble for 20 years after the island separated from the mainland. Uh, this game has very surprisingly deep lore. Uh, and you just kind of run around doing assignments. There's not combat. The devs are planning combat, but it'll be a different separate mode. You can go in mazes. You can do obstacle courses. You can buy spells that do various things like allow you to jump really high there's platforming challenges uh there's there's spells like summon stuffed animals summon cheese summon big cheese (laughs) and also the game just i'm not trying to describe this part the game has a weird like dark underside that's like it I don't think it's like a like a Doki Doki Literature Club si- situation where like secretly the game is like a horror thing, but it comes across more like one of these dads is just one of those dudes who's like fine with scaring kids. Um so on the Unicorn Island there's the unicorn archaeologist named Sir Huntington Swivels. <laughs> and he's like, Hello, I'm Sir Huntington Swivels. And you can talk Please to him. Please help ask me, for... kind sir. Continue. Yeah. And you can uh, ask him for like a random fact about the island. And he'll say something like, oh, uh, sometimes I hear people live under bridges. And that's like your clue. Like, oh, there's a bridge that I can look under for like a quest. Um, but then like every now and again, he will say, Unifer the Pure is still alive and she's watching you. <laughs> oh, it then cuts to like a purple void where it pans over and shows this like glowing unicorn while satanic whispering occurs. <laughs> and then it will hard cut back to you and Sir Huntington Swivels as if nothing happened. I think that's fair. I, I think I think that's a fundamental experience for some children. Cause like I would I would have that feeling whenever because I grew up I grew up Christian. So then they would be like, mm-hmm. God's always watching. I'd be like, that's terrifying. Do not look at me. Do not ever yeah. look at me. <laughs> um, I think, because my, my prompt this week was I was going to find some wholesome children's games. Um, 
unfortunately, Calvin told me that he's not interested in PC games, which I think is the only place you can get this. But as a, uh, you know, somewhat jaded uh, guy in his late 20s, I, I had a lot of fun with this, unironically and somewhat ironically. Uh, later today, they're starting the Halloween event. The game is still being updated with, like, seasonal content. It's $10 on Steam. I think it goes for on sale for, like, 3 I I think you can definitely get, like, an afternoon's worth of fun if you have, like, friends around to watch you play and make commentary. Uh, it's just, it's so sincere and wholesome, and it gets a big thumbs up for me. Nice. You know what else gets a thumbs up in the Daydreamcast uh, world? Trombones. I love Hell trombones. Hell yeah. We support band geeks here. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah, we do. Vaughn, you played a game called Trombone Champ. Tell you me about You played the it. meme game. I did play the meme game. I saw too many things of people saying, is this the best game of the year or whatever? And I was like, All right, sure, I'll check out <laughs> Trombone Champ because you know it wasn't too expensive on Steam or whatever. And I've always been a fan of rhythm games and something that was just very silly in that genre seemed like a good time. And it is a very good time. It's pretty simple. It's, I mean, it literally is just like a rhythm game, but with a trombone skin. Um, the big difference here is that you can play any note at any time, which just leads to hilarity if you are missing your notes because everything just sounds off. But even if you're playing perfectly, it sounds pretty terrible. So it's just kind of hilarious to play the whole time. So how does the how does the note playing work? Because genuinely, it looks like a Wii game, and I keep expecting there to be motion controls involved. Uh, it does feel kind of like that. It's uh, I've just played on PC. I think that might be the only place that it is. But you just move your mouse up and down the sort of scale and then click to play the note. Or you can use spacebar. Um, it does feel like a game that should have motion controls. Um, I'm sure that someone's already modded it to have motion controls so you can play it with a real trombone. But mm-hmm. I've just with played VR. with my mouse. So memes aside, is the game fun i think it's pretty enjoyable i had quite a good time with it um especially like if you are a fan of the the rhythm game genre and this doing something very silly with it um Mm -hmm. it it never takes itself seriously at all um it tries to have some sort of narrative related to baboons but it's just kind of there if you want to uh, pardon (laughs) it's there if you want to get into it but it's really like there's just baboons randomly mentioned throughout and if you do well enough to kind of unlock what it the the further things then there's you kind of pay tribute to the the baboons in the game um you keep saying the word baboons as if it means something to us yeah yeah. other than the monkey with a butt is it the monkey with the butt oh it is there's the game never really explains why they're there either i think the devs just liked baboons and put them in the game i'm more of an orangutan guy but i mean (laughs) I'm not anti-baboon, you know? Um, I think I think what was really interesting in terms of, like, the meme humor and the, just the existence of it is it feels very honest. Like, when you say it plays the notes even when you mess up, I'm like, that is an honest way to portray a, a, a music game. And even if it's funny, that's also just an intended consequence of sounding off. And then the trombone is not the most magical instrument of all time, <laughs> right, even yeah. when it plays right. So I, I just love it. I love the concept. <laughs> it's very like sincere and silly um, and definitely is just like fun the whole time. I think the, the main sort of drawback is that it's just the set list is all um, like 
royalty free like unlicensed not unlicensed but yeah. um those kinds of songs that like you've heard your whole life because public free. domain yeah public domain is what i'm what i'm looking for there so the the songs themselves are not that fun and there's not a lot of replayability in them i'd imagine that as a modding community develops and can add custom tracks and it'll be more fun to go back and replay it but once you get through those those songs it's there's not much to go back to okay my my main worry is like 2023 we're gonna see like five other attempts at this like meme magic you know there's gonna be triangle hero there's gonna be the uh the thurman champ I was expecting a triangle hero early in the rock band days. I think that may be like an EGM April Fool's joke. Yes, yes, I think you're right. I, I do some recall something like that. Yeah, I think anything anything like this is going to end up spawning sort of copycats trying to capitalize on it, but I'm sure that none of it will have the same sincerity and will never take off in the same way. Do you feel an incentive to get good at it? as a rhythm game not particularly um i think because it never really like sounds amazing even if you're doing really okay. well there's there's yeah. stuff to there's stuff to unlock if you get s rank on enough songs so there's like a little bit of incentive there but i'm not like trying to come back to perfect every track or anything once once the initial thrill has worn off it feels kind of disposable yeah pretty much i mean that's how much is it um i think 15 bucks so it's not too bad i mean i I definitely had fun with it i went in with the right expectations which is i'm probably not going to play this too much but it's going to be a silly time for a while and that's pretty much what it was for five less you can buy unicorn tails and summon big cheese that's true that's a compelling we we don't measure which ones are worth it which (laughs) ones aren't okay overwatch 2 is free and i would not recommend it (laughs) (laughs) this is true uh i also played a game where you uh, move things up and down with the with the mouse scale. <laughs> Would you say the scale is sizable? It's a pretty sizable scale. Uh, this is sizable, which is the name of the game. Is a cute little puzzle game. Uh, it kind of reminds me of some like flash-based puzzle games, like Grow Island. If you ever played that back in the day, or Grow Cube, that the whole Grow franchise. Um, and what it is is you get like a little diorama to uh, pan around and you can increase and decrease the sizes of various objects with your mouse wheel and move them around like click and drag and that's it that's the mechanics Um, so it's very simple and each stage there's like three puzzles you need to solve with that and it can be something like you uh, find a treasure chest you scale it up and it will open a bottle with a cork comes out you uh, scale up the bottle and now the cork is too small, so the cork falls out. You can put the cork in a volcano, scale it up so it plugs the volcano. The volcano will erupt, the cork pops out, and so does uh, one of your little objectives. And you click on that, and you've finished that puzzle. Um, so it's very straightforward, very simple. I would definitely recommend this to children. Um, it's just got a real nice charm. The music is very relaxing. And... Uh, I think the only issue is that you can't zoom in on the dioramas themselves. You're stuck at this kind of harsh angle overlooking them. So when you're like trying to pan around, look for something small you can size up, it's very easy to overlook things. There were a lot of puzzles I was stuck on just because I wasn't seeing something that was like at the base of the structure and so small I couldn't notice it. But other than that, you get like eight worlds, which equates to like 
uh, there's six challenges a world, so, you know, six times eight. We all know the times table. I don't need to say the number. <laughs> 48. 48 challenges, uh, you know, and within each of those is, like, three puzzles, so it gets a lot of content. Uh, I find the game very charming. I, I'll finish it, definitely. I'm on world four, and it's just a nice, relaxing time. Okay, dang. Um, would you would you go back into um, the kid the kid effort of like oh I'm gonna play these games that to recommend to Cal that Cal's not gonna play are you gonna do this again <laughs> this this seems delightful I guess I guess I have to look at console games now on Game Pass we we need seems to cute. look at and do a humongous entertainment episode I would do a humongous entertainment episode next season it's it's happening I don't know what. I'm assuming it's a putt putt. I'm assuming. Mark your fucking calendar. Mark the calendar. It's <laughs> happening. Event of the year, to be honest. <laughs> Can't wait. Um, I I just wanted to say this news because I think we're we are we're we're fine on time. Um, did y'all see the fucking bayonetta news on Twitter? I was just reading yeah. about that. Yeah. So yeah, for it's... for those who don't know, like a week ago, everyone was asking, "Hey, platinum." Hideki Kamiya, what's uh what's going on with uh Bayonetta's voice actress? And then they said at the time something like overlapping circumstances has prevented her from voice acting. And then she recently released a video saying uh they only offered her four grand. And then and then Hideki Kamiya then said uh something about liars and that he can't say anymore, and then proceeds to block anybody who asks the question. Which is very on char- in character for him, but is a yikes. I can't Seems believe... like a real unpleasant guy. Yeah. I can't believe the video game industry would be rude to voice actors like that. I can't believe the guy who blocks everybody blocked everybody. It's crazy. <laughs> um, I think it's just another thing in a long line of like, voice actors aren't as respected as you think they might be based on the fact that they're a lot of times... That, like their performance is an entire marketing thing like Bayonetta um, and how quickly and easily they get shafted uh, sometimes for animated adaptations of the properties they are known for. You, you're, uh, you're really lampshading another thing, aren't you? Uh, or, you know, like a fifth entry in an ongoing series and you get like the guy from 24 to play the main character and sure you put in a lore reason for it, but also why not have the guy, um, damn, damn you calling him out. Okay. You're calling out Mel Gear solid and you're calling out the Mario movie. We said, <laughs> yeah, there we go. Like I, I went to, when I was at PAX, I sat in on a, uh, voice acting panel that had like Kira Buckland, uh, a few people from uh, Team Fortress 2, and they said like very often you're not told like the name of the project, you're not even told like the name of the character. Kira Buckland did not know she was voicing 2B in Near Automata. Oh my god. Despite Despite being the main character, she was just told to read lines and That's given wild. like a vague direction. She doesn't know who the character's talking to most of the times. And that's so they don't get like any sort of bargaining power. Because if they if the voice actors knew they were playing very prominent characters, then they would be able to negotiate for higher pay. Oh, God, man. that sucks. Workers should be paid more. We are a pro worker podcast. Pro band geeks pro workers yeah pro trombone pro unicorns <laughs> that, we're just saying it all today 
This is an editor's note by Brogan. Um, this recording was recorded before the the whole Camilla uh, Bayonetta voice acting scandal still was ongoing and developing and it looks like there have been more twists and turns some in which the voice actress may or may not have been um lying or fibbing the truth regarding her uh payment plan uh apparently it was like four thousand per session which may be more so a standard uh contract rate however i don't know we don't know uh, I kept the whole conversation in because there was more to it than that. There was other sentiments to be made. But just so you know, we didn't know that at the time. So, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Thank y'all. Yep, yep. This this week's variety minute is SNESQUILS, the jump from eight bit to sixteen bit. Um, yeah. So games that had a you know started on the NES, and then how did they change in the jump to the sixteen bit era? Um, do you, I would I. I was so bold and confident in this variety minute, but I do not know either of yours experience in the Super Nintendo or even Sega Genesis. If you want to talk Sega Genesis, we, we can do that too. So but. I guess I count in the sense that I played a lot of SNES games that were ported over to the GBA. That's my primary exposure. Um, you know, I played Super Mario World and I always preferred that over uh, Mario Bros. 3 when that came over. Um, what, would would do you, why do you think that? I, I don't know. Even though I, the version of Mario Bros. 3 I played was the, um, the Mario All-Stars version, because that was the version on the GBA. I don't know. It just always felt so much more stiff and strange compared to sort of the effortlessness of, uh, Mario World. It, it's kind of hard to articulate. So, part of it comes down to, like, the gameplay of either. Um, but I also strongly preferred the soundtrack of uh, oh, sure. World compared to 3. Yeah. And part of that's probably because the soundtrack was made in mind for a 16-bit like sound chip, which was able to offer like greater complex melodies. Yep. Um, I mean, I, I guess my thing is, I'm trying to think of the way to say it. I think, I think a lot of times when they did the jump, they were looking at what the tech could support afterwards. Like, we could talk about Link to the Past later. But like... Um, for Mario, I think what was really, what really helps it was it was allowed to have a, number one more buttons. There's like a bajillion buttons on the Super Nintendo yeah. controller, so that way you're you're able to do different kinds of jumps. Mario's got that spin jump. He's got different things that allow him to interact with the environment more, and then those different power ups also are able to be more unique. So like. I guess the best way to say it is there's a difference between the raccoon power-up where you just tap the button and you fly up and then the fucking cape because the cape yeah. has physics, yo. The yeah, cape you goes go down. Yeah, you, you got to fucking <laughs> nice. pilot it. You you have to like go on like train to properly I've, master the cape. I've never mastered the cape. <laughs> I've never been able to fly over the level. I end up diving into a pit. <laughs> <laughs> 
that that and then the extensive ability for more secrets and more inventive levels and variety i say mario's like a difference between like sometimes it's about precision and sometimes it's about the variety of the game design and i think the super nintendo allowed it to explode in that yeah i think the the genre that like benefited the most in the jump was probably rpgs and Absolutely. like open world games like you know, I never played a Final Fantasy game, but I can definitely tell the difference in a, like, monster from Final Fantasy 1 versus 6 because of, like, the higher definition of, like, the character portrait. It looks like it's hand-drawn, whereas, you know, in the NES era, it's very clear that it's all, like, they're doing what they can with the pixels. Yep, and the same thing with, like, the music. I mean, we can go back to the music the whole time. And then we could also do the uh, map for instance, like they do a lot of mode seven where you can scroll with the map and see where you are and all that. Whereas uh, the original Nintendo maps, they're kind of a nightmare to actually navigate. Yeah. Yeah. Vaughn, do you have any any opinions? I feel like we're leaving you out. No, I'm. it's mostly that I don't have like a ton of experience with like that jump in that way. I, I kind of growing up played a lot of stuff kind of scattered. Like my parents were not huge fans of video games. So it was just kind of like uh, play what I could get access to. They rotted your brain. Exactly. <laughs> and they continue to. So like, did you do like the jump from like original Game Boy or Game Boy Color to a uh, GBA? Because that's very much the same level of like a uh, leap in uh, quality. Yeah, that's true. There, there is. I mean, and I've I've definitely experienced those, those jumps. Just often not like the direct. Like I played this game and then the sequel on the the next generation. But I think that the I, I can make a comparison that I think you know, like the jump from Pokemon Gen two to Gen three. Oh yeah, it, certainly. It, I I mean, and that's the the ideas of it definitely continue throughout pretty much all of of gaming history. Really, of like when new hardware comes out, it becomes about trying to design to that hardware and trying to take advantage of of all the corners of it that you possibly can, um, which sometimes works out and becomes like the game becomes better for it, and sometimes it just feels like they're using that hardware to create like kind of gimmicks of how can we use this versus actually designing a, a properly constructed game? Um, we can, I can cite an example here and this may be controversial, but Pavlos would agree with me, even though I think it's a better game than he does. Castlevania four, which um, definitely uh, goes, it takes this, the linear approach. It's a remake of Castlevania one, but very grossly like that's a, that's a gross overstatement or understatement. It's, it's way more than that. It's just a normal game. It's its own thing. But the big thing was is they sort of sacrificed the design of the sub weapons and all of that stuff for the sake for the sake of having a strong whip and the mobility of the whip. You can whip in eight directions and you can also use it to swing from chain to chain uh, because the Super Nintendo supported that. And then there's also like really cool moments in Castlevania 4 where like you're hanging from the whip and you're like hanging there and then the room shifts around in that mode seven way and it's all technically impressive but the game the game is really designed in that way for spectacle rather than actual design so uh, yeah. it falters and you can see that later on other other castlevanias don't really borrow from that and like 
the the Castlevania on the Sega Genesis Bloodlines doesn't do that. It's a much more fundamental Castlevania experience, but they're they're able to much more focus on the atmosphere, which uh, really helps the game. So. Yeah, like the fact that a lot of NES games kind of like tapped into a perfect design through need of like having to work around the shortcomings of the system. Castlevania One's very much like that, where it's like, well, we can't really have very rapid attacking. Uh, so we're going to have to make, like, design the game in a way that every attack is, like, slow and calculated on the player's part. Whereas in Castlevania Castlevania 4, you can just bust that whip out, like, all the time and everything dies in one hit. So it's, like, it's, like, fun to play, but not quite as satisfying to master. And more importantly, like, to that sub-weapon thing is really important because, like, they designed the game around the sub-weapons. And now when you get a sub-weapon, when you get a knife or a cross or a holy water or an axe in Castlevania Four, you don't really use it. Unless it's, like, inconvenient for you to whip. But when is it inconvenient for you to whip if you can whip in eight directions? Yeah. And it's, like, uh, I find this true for the uh, Mega Man games as well. Like, go what, what was the first one on the SNES? Was that Mega Man 7? Oh my god, I you're asking me and I'm so scared. I'm pretty sure X was the first. I don't quote me. But I'm, the, I'm like 90% of the main sure X. line cuz X is its own discussion. Uh 7 would be the first of classic. Yeah, so I didn't really I like I've played through Mega Man's 1 through 6, the like the NES ones, and then when I jumped to 7, it felt I don't know, it felt weird and didn't feel as charming to me with like the SNES polish. And I think it goes back to that like Castlevania issue of like the original Mega Man's are like so perfectly suited for the NES that uh it it feels like they didn't have a lot of ideas for jumping to SNES. Do you do you remember that conversation we had about um Super Mario All-Stars and that like obscuring of detail because it's like now yeah. it's got too much detail. Um mm-hmm. I think with that um it it made the color palette and the size of things different. So when Mega Man 7 comes out, they're like, we can make things more expressive. So they made Mega Man bigger. And they made every yeah. enemy bigger. So the game is slower. And the game is much more... Um, the game is fundamentally different, too. 7 is much more focused on a little bit more exploration. A little bit more secrets in the corners. Um, stuff like that. And much more of a general... like. There's a shop. There's a bunch of different experiences that aren't just hardcore platforming. And um, you can see contrasted with Mega Man X I suppose they wanted to change the tones and have different focus that's probably why Mega Man 7 feels so different but X is much more like Mega Man X is smaller and he can have a dash he has a really good dash and he can jump around so he has really good mobility even though he's bigger than the original Mega Man sprite you know what I mean yeah so so it's, it's one a of more those graceful things. adaptation yes because... of the action mm-hmm. what about something comparing like metroid to super metroid um i think that's almost that's (laughs) almost the reverse where it's like they all they really did was polish it up with the snes they like metroid always felt like a snes game trapped on the nes (laughs) yeah you played metroid one on the nes right yeah okay so number one you can't fucking save believe me you need to be able to save yeah you know what that's like to definitely bring up the ability to save uh changed a lot of how the games could be designed (laughs) yeah 
Yeah. Um, and, and, like, you could save in, like, the original Zelda and stuff. But it really depended on the cartridge and whether or not it would support it. It's like a miracle if you can save, right? Otherwise, you have to fucking do the, uh, the codes. The grid, like, yeah, the passwords. Uh, yeah. The, um, but I would also say Metroid's also very focused on atmosphere. So when we talk about Metroid being trapped on the NES, it's too abstract. It's too... It's too much mm -hmm. of, like, not... There's the focus isn't there because at the very least on the Game Boy the black and white enables it to have a uh, detail. It's still detail. Yeah. It's just in black and white. Um, whereas on the NES you're you're looking at blobs upon blobs and it's not clear where you can bomb. It's not clear where you can do this. There is no map in Metroid One. You have to make the map, which can yeah. be fun for some, is not fun for Metroid One. Um, Just compare <laughs> compare Ridley in one compared to how Ridley looks in Super, and it's like night and day. One yeah. is definitely more intimidating and terrifying than the other, which is the intent. Ridley's supposed to be like super scary when you see him, uh, but I think if I saw like you know just Metroid One Ridley out in reality, I'd probably punt it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a little adorable. It's literally like the baby crate. It looks like baby crate. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I agree. And then just, yeah, just the music, all of that stuff. Visuals really helped Metroid and the movement. It made combat fun. Man, Super Metroid's really good for that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, racing games also, I think, really benefited. I guess I should mention this is like with the mode seven, like you were able to experience speed better. Like people are really like, Obviously, there was a big, like, Sega Genesis, like, look at the speed of Sonic the Hedgehog. But, yeah. like, F-Zero is a crazy game. You right? could actually make it a racing game rather than, like, a weird rally time trial thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like, I mean, there you could have some racing experiences on it, but there's just a completely different experience actually being able to have tech that supports it. I think racing is one of those scenarios where you need powerful tech. Yep. You still good, Vaughn? Yeah, no, <laughs> I just kind of uh, just kind of enjoying the chat. But like, I, I think the jump in, in visual fidelity makes such an impact on, especially like we're talking about sequels, like you have games that are designed a certain way and, and kind of have to be designed a certain way because you have to be expressive with the limited um, abilities of being 8-bit and then when there's that jump it's like some games can translate really easily to that different visual format where it's more expressive and you have more freedom and like as you were talking about with Mega Man it's like sometimes it ends up becoming sort of overbearing where they they almost have too much freedom and that it has an impact on the gameplay of it so it's like where do you where do you balance that and some games they're kind of the way they were designed initially translates so perfectly to increased visual fidelity without taking away from the gameplay like also like pokemon like that became so much more expressive and colorful and interesting as it you know advanced into that kind of that gen 3 era without really taking away from the core of the gameplay just because of how it was designed. And I think the same is, is true if we're, you know, talking about, like, Zelda. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's a really good segue. Do we have any others, or are we just segueing in? No, no, I think, I think let's, get, let's get into it. We're, we're clipping along at a very decent pace, world record speed.
I'm just kidding. Oh, no. <laughs> These intro songs throughout are great. <laughs> I'm having fun. Uh, the Legend of Zelda A Link to the Past is our game of the week. It was a Super Nintendo game developed by Nintendo EAD, or originally known as RND4, uh, released in America in 1992. Uh, the game was an ambitious expansion to the scope of the first two Zeldas and sought to utilize a lot of the uh, Super Nintendo's new features um, and even some features unique to the car cartridge, like the expanded memory. Um, this story features a boy named Link who awakens one night to find his uncle going on a quest to save Princess Zelda. Though your uncle meets an unfortunate end, you take up the sword and go on a quest to save Zelda, find pendants to find the master sword and then save the other maidens who have been locked away in the dark realm by the evil agonim and ganon uh and then you finally defeat ganon himself in the dark world uh it operates more like zelda 1 than zelda 2 because it's top down and you're exploring the overworld and you go into dungeons um there is a singular overworld map but it there's two versions of it uh, in the light world and the dark world. And the dark world is where the latter half of the dungeons and more dangerous gameplay takes place. Um, Y'all, what did you... Z Vaughn, tell me what you thought about this game. I, I love this game a lot. It's been it's interesting been interesting playing it again because it's been so long since I've played it. But, I mean, A Link to the Past, is it's still great. It's kind of hailed as one of the best games of its era, I think, for for very good reason. I mean, often Zelda games are kind of in that camp of their respective generations, but uh, it certainly, I think, holds up pretty damn well outside of a couple of things that I found a little bit janky playing in retrospect, but it's a damn good game. Murph? Well, oh, I was hoping you guys would talk more. I, I don't want to make any enemies today. No, no, no. If, if you got if you got something to say, <laughs> say it. This All is right. a podcast where people talk about their opinions. Oh, what is your opinion? Never ends. Uh, so this is my first time playing this ever. Um, this is probably my least favorite Zelda. What? Okay, by, wow. That's a really... Bit. Time out. It's either this or Spirit Tracks. Can, can I just get a recap of what Zeldas you all have played? I, most of them. Uh, yeah, I think pretty much all. Any the notable main... ones you haven't is a better way, I guess. Skyward Sword, and the Damn. Oracle games, and Four Swords. Damn. Okay. All right, Vaughn. What ones have you played? Um, I've played a fair few, but definitely not anywhere close to all of them. I'm definitely not as up on some of the, the older ones, but I've played most of the 3D stuff, except I also have not played, um, Skyward Sword. Um, but yeah, I've played quite a bit of Zelda, except for, yeah, a lot of that older stuff I've missed out on, um, but definitely have gone back to play Link to the Past and still enjoy it. Okay. All right. Now, Murph, you can tell me why it's your least favorite. Continue. All right, number one with a bullet. The grass isn't fun to cut. How dare you? How dare you? That's get out of here! Just get get the fuck out of here! I just 
I was... <sighs> I was either bored or frustrated with this game most of the time. I can't think of really any moment, maybe the final Ganon fight, where I was like, I'm having a fun time. This is this is gameplay. Um, I think just, like, the severe lack of any story, any really, like, charming characters, which is what I come to Zelda for. Like, it, it, what, like the credits pan over, like, all the people you've met on the way, and I was like, oh, no, that's there's only going to be, like, three. I don't really remember any characters in this. Uh, and then it kept going, and I was like, oh, yeah, I guess they count. Yeah, I guess they kind of count. The guy you buy flippers from for four, 500 rupees? Sure, why not? Uh, the the most, like, emotional moment in the game is is the flute boy. And that's just something you can entirely skip over. Yeah. Really? Uh, I guess you kind of needed to get to the last dungeon. Eh. Yeah, yeah, uh, I think you needed to. I, I think. I don't know how else you get to the swamp because I, I transport to the desert and then I use the thing on the swamp. I don't normally go the other way. Yeah, if only the if only the fast travel worked in the dark world where you spend most of the game. All right, okay, all right. Let me ask you. Let me ask you another big franchise question. What does Zelda mean for you? What do you look for in a Zelda? I look for fun characters, thematic dungeons. And a sense of awe and wonder at the climax. Vaughn, what, what do you look for in a Zelda? Uh, I would say, I, I think, I mean, for me, it's, it really just comes down to the gameplay of it. Obviously, I think the other stuff, like the characters and the story itself is kind of like bonus to me. But as long as that core gameplay loop is enjoyable... Um, and especially I would say also just the design of the world because I think that's what really grabs me is just the larger world of it because um, that's really what I look for and, and fun dungeons as well yeah like it had me at the start when it like starts and it's like pouring rain and you're just thrown in like in media res you gotta rescue the princess from the dungeon and then like once you're through that and the world opens up I was so excited but once it became apparent that there's no real like story progression until the last act if it can even be called that it just felt it just rang very hollow to me like i miss like i don't know the ocarina of time method where like each dungeon gets its own little like narrative and arc where you're like introduced to like major players for that area and you're in a way in solving the dungeon you're like fixing a problem for a local community and things like that uh, it just, the, the openness was so strange to me, which is weird because this is like only the third Zelda. <laughs> I don't know. I really, I really like the openness of it to me. I think the, there certainly is less of a continuing narrative drive through it, but I, that works for me. I like it because I think I feel more sort of having my own journey as Link rather than going along with Link um, if that makes any sense, I, I just kind of think it, it works well for sort of self-inserting your own adventure through it. Let me ask you, let me ask this for, because this will help determine the tone of the conversation. I didn't play with a guide. I did not either. Um, it's one of those things where I've played the game enough to where I don't need it. But I could also see points where we talk about needing it. We, we can talk about that later. We can talk about all that. Um, let let me say what I value in a Zelda. Um, I think 
I think I can appreciate the story elements and then the character design and everything you said. I think those were realities that were able to be focused on after after the tech caught up. Because I don't even think you could do um, that stuff on a Super Nintendo. Or at least that sort of way. Um, uh, like Final Fantasy VI and whatnot. Uh, apparently this game was like really, really harsh on the thing. Okay. Final Fantasy VI, well, you got to realize is like how it loads into different areas, right? Mm-hmm. This is like a seamless world. This overworld is like seamless from transition to transition. And then you have to go into these different minor things. Um, it, I compare this game as an expansion to Zelda 1. When I think of it in terms of a sequel, I'm not thinking of it in terms of what came after. Um, I'm thinking of what came before. And in that case, this is like emerging between Zelda 2 and Zelda 1, um, where there is there is a much more focused narrative. Dog, Murph, let me ask you, how many lovable characters are in Zelda 1? Uh, old man who tells you it's dangerous to go alone. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. And also, the it's a secret to everybody goblin. He's great. Yeah. I love him. Yeah. Anyways. The merchant who's like, boy, it's expensive. <laughs> yeah. Those guys. <laughs> <You know. laughs> like, I get the I get the Zelda 1 to Link to the Past comparison, and I like Zelda 1 more than this. And I think it's because it's sort of, this feels like it's at a midpoint between Zelda 1 and, like, where they would take the franchise with Ocarina. And I would rather really have either end of those spectrums rather than this, like, awkward middle point. Like, it just feels, to me, it's, like, not... It, I, like, I think the game's well-designed, but it also just feels default to me, in a way. Like, if uh, you boot up your, your Zelda.exe, make a Zelda program, this is the base level, and then you add the flavor to that. Yeah, no, I mean, I definitely... Because I said this, if you consult the Mega Man Legends episode, we talked about A Link to the Past a little bit, because Brendan had similar feelings to this, and I, the, what I said at the time was um, this game influenced, I mean, like when we talk about Zelda formula, it's not an Ocarina of Time formula. It is a link to the past formula, but Ocarina yeah. of Time added the innovations that the N64 and later technology was capable of. Does that make sense? Especially yeah. the, the cinematic aspects to it. Like um, I played a lot of this being like, yep, this is a Zelda. I've played one of these before, but then like, I'd get into a dungeon and be looking for like, okay, what's the puzzle of this dungeon that I'm going to find a way to solve with the key item. And then the key item is like, Oh, you can uh, take less damage now. It's like, Oh, okay. It just kind of, I don't know. I guess in that way it threw me off. Maybe like if I had a second pass at this, knowing how it works, I'd come away with greater appreciation, but I also still have a lot of problems with like, how a lot of the rooms are designed. We'll go ahead and talk about it. Uh, constant damage, especially from random locations, isn't fun. Uh, it doesn't feel like I'm in control of my own health bar. Uh, a lot of them feel over-designed in terms of hazards to me, where it's like, okay, it's not just that there's a random bouncing around like anti-fairy. And yes, there is a solution for that that you get down the line. But it's not just that there's a random source of damage bouncing around that you uh, doesn't take any damage. It's also that there's two little turrets firing, seeking fireballs at you. And also spike balls sliding around from different sides. Uh, 
and you've just got to kind of run around and panic and hope you have enough health for that. Uh, it, it just, a lot of the areas feel very busy with damage sources, and it's very hard to get your bearings, especially since this game wants you to explore around. Um, I, I can understand that. I liked... I guess my issue is, is like, I, I like some of these aspects. I like the challenge. I don't know. How do you um, feel about the moth boss? <laughs> is that the one where you got to throw the fucking flame thing and then the fucking spikes go? Is th- That's that one? Where the floor is moving. Yes. And the walls are lined with spikes. The spikes will randomly, like, move out and cross the length of the room. Also, there's this giant moth that takes up a, I'm going to say a generous <laughs> fourth of the size of the room flying around shooting beams. And you've got to like navigate and hit that. <laughs> um, I thank God for Nintendo Switch Online save states. <laughs> um, <laughs> I I would say I don't I don't disagree that this game is hard, and I'm not gonna say get good. I'm gonna say that um, I th- I think there is something I appreciate in the difficulty. This game was not meant to be completed in two weeks, right? This game was meant to be mm-hmm. completed when you're nine years old and there's fucking, you've got months. This was going to be your action RPG of the time. Subscribe to Nintendo Power or the Nintendo Sub- Hint Hotline. Well, well, no, yeah. When, you, when we talk about like the difficulty finding overworld items, it's what I said earlier. When we talk about spoiling things where... Part of the game is the discourse and part of learning things is learning from other people. It's like Dark Souls. I I would compare it to Dark Souls in the, did you know you could shoot Guinevere and Anne Orlando and get a new thing? And you'd be like, no. And you'd be like, yeah, you should do it. And and, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Like, it's just a completely different, like way of design and it could be punishing to new players or players rushing to complete for a podcast. And I would definitely sympathize (laughs) with that. I definitely think like the the structure of it like it's punishing but it also doesn't feel to me at least like I don't I don't mind that because I don't think that the punishment is ever that harsh like you always are you're never going back to a square one that's like frustrating to me like I think the dungeons are small enough to where that sort of the the death and and restarting is just kind of part of it for me and sort of like it's just like you have to learn like the pathing of it like i have to go in this way and then what's the best way to navigate the combat in this room or the the sort of get around things and yes i'm going to probably lose a lot of my health and die several times before i really get through that pathing and get to the end but eventually you learn it and you kind of get it down to a science of how to navigate those areas and that's kind of part of the fun for me is kind of figuring out how to navigate everything perfectly i would highlight and to be fair to murph here i said it in the chat um i think there is an issue with the top down gameplay in terms of how combat functions i think a heavy focus on combat gets really really hard for this top-down gameplay versus Zelda 2, which it being a side-scroller allows you to have different uh, abilities for sword play, for instance. And sword play became a big part of the 3D games. Um, mm-hmm. Here, it's sort Even. of like you're you're swinging wildly, and they did fix it to where instead of Zelda 1, where you just like jut out, where you like stab forward, you do like a swing in a horizontal way. But um, even then, I, I could see difficulties with combat for a, a while. Mm-hmm. What were you going to say, Murph? 
I was going to say, like, well, like, Zelda 1, that game is grid-based, so you always know for sure you're going to hit something if it's directly in front of you. In this, because, like, enemies can kind of be off-center, there were a lot of times where I was swinging, and my sword was just kind of passing through them because they weren't really in the hurt box of the, uh, the sword. And that just kind of led off to what felt like cheap damage. <laughs> sure. Um... I guess uh, I guess we should broaden it out to how did how did we feel about like the early build? Up? Let's let's go for the first half first. Like getting the master sword. Did you like getting the master sword? Yes, because at that point, like a lot of the areas were like still fresh. Like oh, it's a it's a forest dungeon. It's a desert dungeon. It's a swamp dungeon. Um, but once you get in the latter half of the game, all the dungeons just bleed into each other for me uh, even even mechanically because i get the feeling like what what i like is i actually like i like the the dark i like the dark world dungeons other than the last two just because the last two are hard in the sort of exhausting way i get exhausted by them whereas before that the rest of the dark world dungeons are very short and very unique and fun for me you know what i mean i always like i always like the little gimmicks um, I don't know. I, I just I just enjoy how they do it. Um, it's not based on the singular weapon of that you unlock in the in the dungeon. It's just it's just a singular like oh the thief's hideout. You gotta blow up a a thing. There's a bunch of illusions. Don't trust these. There's one specific spot you have to trust. And then there's all that bullshit. Or I'm trying to remember each one. Um, I'm trying to remember the one where it's like. Ugh. Yeah, it's I like the water it? one. The water <laughs> one is really good with the levels. I, I, you, you said you disliked I, it. I, I liked it because number one, it actually did utilize the uh, chain because you get the chain in that one. Yeah, um, and, it's and also the, the only time in the game that they utilize a puzzle where you do something in one version of the world and switch back. Yeah, I thought that would be a more common mechanic, but no, it's just for that one instance. It is interesting. I mean, it is definitely more like cumulative in that you are constantly like building this sort of skill set, which is like I like the sort of build up and that first half so much because it does teach you like the you know, you kind of go through and like learn the how to navigate the sort of the basics of the gameplay as as well as you can throughout those early dungeons and those early overworld navigations. And then it kind of gets to a point of like, all right, I've mastered it. And then you get switched over into the second half of the game where it starts to introduce more stuff and you get to really build off of that initial skill set that you've built. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like the building of your arsenal is always a fun part of the Zelda games. I think just my issue in this is that a lot of them feel not necessarily redundant, but so magic dependent that there are clear benefits to using one over the other especially for later dungeons where magic becomes like your only way forward yeah yeah i mean i think the i think they should have uh made the mp bar thought thought more about how they utilize the mp bar and um and also made access to green potions easier but that being said these are all also things that like they learned after after the fact um even zelda zelda 2 was more dependent on magic um mm -hmm. but that being said 
I I don't know, man. I I like this game, dog. I, I how, these, how do you feel? All, all of these complaints I hear, I'm like, eh, eh. And I I I I entirely like give you that. To me, this game like sits at like an okay five out of ten. I don't uh, think this is my favorite Zelda, but I don't think this is the worst Zelda. How do you feel about the not necessarily like secret but necessary items? being sort of squirreled away and you don't know you need them until you're fighting a boss that requires them. I think that kind of lends itself to both the sort of communal nature of trying to solve the game's puzzles as well as sort of going back and building up how to perfectly execute certain things. Like if you get to a certain point and you realize that, oh, I actually might need to go and find something to return to this and beat this then you've already sort of perfected that navigation of that part of the dungeon and then you can go out and come back and it's not that big of a deal um, but i think that also goes to like trying to solve those secrets in discussions with other people playing it which obviously is sort of lost in, in a modern format but i think that's sort of the the intent there i i would agree and what i would say would be um Number one, let's look at the items that were like really probably uh, the ones, the two things that come to my mind are the Quake Medallion and the uh, Ice Wand. In which mm -hmm. the Ice Wand which, is what I was thinking of. Okay, so the thing about those is it's what Vaughn said earlier, where, where you don't, you're not obligated to. I think the later Zeldas make it to where it's like as soon as you walk into a Zelda dungeon, you should be fine to complete it. That's not necessarily the case here. And that wasn't necessarily the case before this either um, in terms of the other titles. Um, so so when, when you go into the boss that requires both the fire beam, which you definitely got by the time of that boss. and Because the, the fire ice... is required for solving puzzles. Yes. Um, and then and then the ice the the ice part you go oh there must be there has to be another one of these and you may for instance you know look inside the ice palace and be like D was it here but in truth it is in the light world on the bottom right corner and yes that's definitely hard to find but that being said if you the light world is not hard to navigate number one so that's not necessarily a big issue if you're not exploring all of at least the light world i think uh, i don't bl i i don't blame that i don't blame that on the developers i think that that's that late in the stage where you could easily go over and be like oh maybe i should just check the places i've never checked before um because it's because it's literally just a bombed wall on the bottom right and for yeah. the quake medallion the quake medallion literally has what it is is there's like a, a ring of rocks in the water um you might check that area because in that top right area is where you got the zora flippers on the light world so then you're like well maybe there's something good over here that area is blocked off but before you get exactly to that area there's a sign that says do not throw anything into my lake so you might just well, what if I throw something into the lake? So in that way, it's organic and is signposted. As long as you go to the top right corner of the map, if you're going straight to the numbers, there might be a problem. Yeah, well, no, I I got the Quake Medallion super early um, and got the Ice Rod only until I knew I needed it as a thing. And when we were talking about this game in sort of the Discord chat ahead of time, you were saying, like, oh, this is more in common with, like, a Metroidvania-style progression. 
um, where, you know, you're supposed to encounter problems and think like, well, I'll probably get some sort of solution for that down the line. <coughs> My issue is, is that a lot of these items only have the one obstacle they can clear. And then they're just sort of in your inventory for fun. And the ice rod is one of those. Because, like, the fire rod, you can use that, like, you know, it's great for taking out Gibdos. And then the one time you randomly use it to burn a skull. But, uh, but, but, but you're, you're, you're missing a big thing it, here. Is you can access the ice rod way earlier. You, the ice rod can be one of the first things you find. Yeah. So, but, so when you're comparing the two... What, what if the person got the ice rod hours and dungeons before the fire rod, even if the fire rod is better? I get, well, you, you were saying like, if I have a fire rod, surely I must into that there's an ice rod. I, I didn't because I never encountered anything in the overworld that made me think like, huh, this sure would be easier if I had the power of ice on my side. Well, uh, well, I you mean, I, I think the into would be the boss specifically, where there is two sides of the dragon. Yeah, and, that's and one side I, gets rid of one head. When I but realized, otherwise, yes, at the boss, and then I had to die to the boss so I could go out and look for the boss's weakness, and that's just not satisfying to me. Yeah, especially since there was nothing to like. You know, at the very least, with Ganon, there's the little plaque where a uh, Sarashalasala, the sage shows up and is like hey you're gonna need like special arrows to hurt him and then it even like ganon's fight has two phases in the midpoint of which you can go out and explore and look for this weakness yeah yeah no no uh, i think the arrows are probably the best circumstance of that because the arrows are also in the fucking center of the dark world so it's not yeah. like super difficult yeah um i don't know vaughn what do you think I, I mean, I just, I really, I like the way that it sort of promotes the exploration. And like you said, like that you can choose not to finish something that you start if you decide that you want to go out and do more things. I mean, I think like one of my biggest complaints with like a later game, if you talk about like Twilight Princess, it's like you enter one of those dungeons and it just, it's ridiculously long to actually go through and complete it. And there's no such thing as like figuring out that you need something, which you don't need. Once you enter it, you can complete it. But there's no such thing as like leaving halfway through to go do something else. It's like you start it and you better finish it because it's yeah. just so long to get through it and navigate it. So it's like, I like that everything is contained to that point of like, if you figure something out, it's not a, you know, frustrating or exhausting to have to go and, and explore for it. It's like, okay, I'm just going to take a break from this dungeon and come back when I've found the solution here. Yeah, exactly. I wasn't stressed out about not having something. Like even even when in my earlier playthroughs, I I would always just be like, well, maybe it's somewhere else, and maybe I can come back to this when I'm stronger. Um, let me ask you, Murph. Um, this th all of this when we were talking in the chat. I spoiler alert: we knew ahead of time you didn't like this game. <laughs> um, <laughs> Sultan Sanctuary. We talked about a couple episodes ago, and that mm. was a scenario where you talked about you know needing items from across the thing even though this was a non-linear thing and you had to go all the way across the map did you feel the same sort of agonies there um yeah when you when you made that comparison i definitely saw that i think that the difference is is that sultan sanctuary just uses items for progression like oh there's a da there's a gap i can't jump over i need the air dash it's never required for any sort of combat challenges Sure. So there's no, like, bosses that are weak to a particular thing you can pick up. Um, 
in that way, it's very much more similar to like how you'd go through a FromSoft game, like a like a Dark Souls, where you know there are a lot of different bosses you can encounter at different times, and if one is just too tough for you, you can go and like clear another area and fight another boss, and by the time you beat that one, you're probably strong enough to go back to the one you were stuck on. And that sort of asymmetrical progression, I much rather prefer compared to this where it's like nah you just you just can't hurt the boss without the magic item that you didn't know you needed well i mean so i guess the difference there is literally just whacking another thing enough to get the xp needed or the better loot if it was a circumstance where it's like that that three-headed boss i could still damage the ice head but it just took like a long time compared to if i just had the boss's weakness that i would be more in favor of um i can understand that yeah and and, i mean there's a reason why they own like they started putting just the items you need to beat the boss in the same dungeon you know what i mean there there are reasons for that i think this is still an archaic aspect of the game design and then they were like they were looking back and going you know what this is this is kind of a problem but also I think it's limiting, man. When you talk about like having one item in a dungeon and then you use it on the boss and isn't that a great experience? I'm like, man, that's kind of (laughs) lame. Yeah, I do. I do agree that like, yeah, it's not ideal for a lot of Zelda games. Like Twilight Princess especially has this issue where a lot of the items feel like, okay, this you've used it in this dungeon. Now it's disposable. You'll never call on the spinner again. You'll never call on the ball and chain again because it's an inefficient weapon. And I think that design also has its problems but uh, at the same time like i said at the very start those games have the leg up for me because they have like characters and a world i care about all right no that's fair i mean for me i'm also like vaunt where it's like i self-insert especially with I, I, i'm able to self-insert basically with these first three zelda games and then i can do it a little bit with breath of the wild and Link's awakening and then after that, it starts to get harder and harder as the games start to put in more story and more charm. You know what I mean? So Yeah. Like, I, you know, I love to self-insert, but I just don't feel this game really gives you the, the tools to, you know? Yeah, I, I don't even necessarily think that really any of your criticisms are, are wrong in any way. Like, I think that there are definitely issues with the game. I think that it can be frustrating and i think the combat is certainly imperfect a lot of the time but like i think with a lot of the zelda games like just as a franchise i think it sort of exists in this space of you when you find these games and play them a lot of the time like the they're situationally endearing and then you kind of carry that with you and you like them often kind of in spite of their flaws so i can definitely understand playing it for the first time without any of that prior attachment and find just seeing more of that stuff coming out without really having that same endearment yeah you said it was basically like a five out of ten game right that's 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 your take on it like you don't actually hate it you just think it's a growing pain in which case i would completely sympathize with. i'm just mostly bored by it and when i'm not bored i'm frustrated uh gotcha but like i said it just feels very default like for the longest time i always heard this game was like you know everyone was like ocarina of time best ever 10 out of 10 and then there was like the secret cabal of zelda fans who were like but secretly link to the past is the superior one i see that's mm, the secret cabal was always wrong now i'm really (laughs) seeing that it's like the two divides on the zelda fan base and what they value link to the past feels very more like gameplay uh 
oriented and then like the side that says ocarina of past value the story and then i think yeah. that eventually they found a happy medium in breath of the wild there was a weird period around 2009 when for some reason the games industry was like skyward sword right <laughs> i think um, i think that's just a scenario where people hype up any zelda right um but yeah. i agree i think breath of the wild was just like able to merge most most people's fan like i think the only people actively disappointed in breath of the wild were people that loved 3d dungeons so like the twilight princess skyward sword crowns were like uh there's not a lot of dungeons in this game or at least the dungeons with variety and aesthetic because the shrines all look the same um yeah. so like i in that aspect i agree but like my Zelda, my favorite Zeldas were the open stuff or the ones that gave you a sense of adventure and exploration. So Le Legend of Zelda 1 or Wind Waker or any of those were just like, whoa. And then Breath of the Wild was able to deliver on those for me. And then, yeah, there's there's a marriage of story that if you want to engage with, you can in that open environment. And there's still like hard gameplay, Souls-esque. It's like Dark Souls, but Zelda. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah. Uh, like It was able to do all of that. I love Breath of the Wild. It's an amazing game mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah now i think breath of the wild probably sits at like my sort of default like yeah that's the that's the best zelda um secretly it's phantom hourglass but i uh, you see i disagree for the, for the I longest like time hourglass. it was wind waker but no phantom hourglass is good i think what i like about phantom hourglass is number one the main dungeon that you keep going back to i think yes. that's a really cool yeah. idea um and i like the note taking of the ds and uh, I like the Linebeck. mini Wind Waker thing with Linebeck. All that stuff's yeah. good. Um, but Link's Awakening's better. So I love Link's Awakening. Let's, if we're talking 2D Zelda, it's either Link's Awakening or Phantom Hourglass for me. Oh uh, yeah, no, I mean I I think Link's Awakening is probably my favorite. I haven't re like I was curious to replay Minish Cap. I was re curious to replay the Oracle games because I was a kid when I played those. So, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, it's always fun to go back to Zelda. Like I'm interested now to go back to those DS games and, and see how those fare now. But yeah, going back to Link to the Past was was definitely an interesting experience and, and also very enjoyable. I agree, man. This, it, man, Zelda's just fun. I just like Zelda, even when it's like mediocre. Maybe it yeah. is mediocre, but I just like you want to play a uh, Wand of Gamelon. I'll do it. <laughs> Merv, you should never just ask me out of the blue whether or not I'll play a video game. I literally, to quote, I want to play video games all the time and every day. Yeah, yeah, that was that was the theme song. Yeah. But now it's now it's daydream. <laughs> now it's cast been replaced with all of his friends. Oh man. All right. Well, do we do we wanna do we wanna plug some fellows we know? Yeah. Uh, Vaughn Vaughn, you're the guest. I think you should do plugs. <laughs> Yeah, 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 I agree. I don't know what I'm plugging. Do, 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 plug the same things you would plug on spoiling things. Oh, I'm plugging myself? Yes. <laughs> I mean, sure, I can... if you want to in public, God is watching. <laughs> <laughs> the unicorn God is watching. I can do that. I can do that in front of everybody for everybody to watch and see. Um, <laughs> you can find me on uh, the Twin Geeks. I write a lot of things about movies and uh, you can also check out my podcast, I'm Thinking of Spoiling Things, which Murph has been on before. So if you want to check out that episode to start, it's a very fun episode with a lot of variety. Mm -hmm. um, and if you are into movies, you can follow me on Letterboxd. I am just Zebra. Yeah, yeah, and also Zero Zebra. Nope, unassociated account. I don't know anything about it. All Damn. right. Uh, your co-host, <laughs> Steven, is also on another uh, 
section of podcasts, the uh, the stacks, uh, where he and Jack do a rotating sort of show. Sometimes they're interviewing Stephen's favorite letterbox reviewers. Sometimes they're just shooting the shit for Stacks Office Hours. Uh, they just got a Patreon where you can go subscribe for some exclusive podcasts and movie commentaries. I recommend it. It's fun to listen to Steven talk uh, over Jurassic Park 3. And uh, Jack, you can also check out his albums on SoundCloud and Bandcamp. There you go. Yes, 100%. And I will also include samples of his right now. That first song you heard was called Coffee for Closure. The second song you heard was called Her Trembling Hand. That second one being my personal favorite. And the first one, Coffee for Closure, being the most played on Spotify. Uh, This is by Jack. Jack is the person who has done our theme song um, and any variation of the major theme. Um, He goes by 10 second beats for this album. So again, the album is called Last Nightclub on Earth. And you can find him on uh, Bandcamp or wherever else. Spotify is one. Uh, Last Night Club on Earth, 10 Second Beats. Thank you all. And back to our regularly scheduled programming. And then, and then, uh, yeah, and, and then, then there, there were. they were. Yeah, continue. Uh, there's also the Twin Geeks podcast where David and Calvin go through entire filmographies of their favorite directors. They are still doing Robert Altman and probably will be during till the end of time. I'll keep saying that until they switch to a new director. Do you think they're burnt uh, out? On Altman? Yes. I don't know. They still seem happy. Good. But, you know, Good. some I... people like Link to the Past. <laughs> okay. Well, God damn, dog. I like Ganon in this. I like Pig Ganon. I'm super pro. It's fantastic. You're pro Pig Ganon? Okay, yes. well, we'll keep that in mind. I'm also pro Pig Ganon. There you go. Oh, I... I, I, sure. I mean, you guys can like your cop Ganon. <laughs> i like murdering the pig ganon yes oh yeah, yeah. all right all right uh uh 
you know, there's there's other things, other shows, maybe maybe something on the wind debuting this month, perhaps. But perhaps I've said too much. Ooh. What? Oh. Oh yeah, that's how you get them. <laughs> uh Brogan, Brogan, get get the rest of them. Tell it tell leave the tease. What are we doing next week? Okay, everybody. Not next week, next episode. <laughs> All right. We, we talked a, a little bit about Castlevania earlier. We will actually be playing. You know, Murph, you fucking said, like, oh, in, on the NES, they only had, like, the slow Simon <laughs> Belmont whip. Uh, you're wrong, because Castlevania 3 had alternate characters. We're playing Castlevania 3 with a very special guest, Illusory Wall, from YouTube fame. So, yeah. Woo. Uh, yeah. We're like Super Smash Bros now. We're just adding people all the time. What is this? A crossover episode, even? Yeah. Nice. Z- Vaughn, thank you so much for being here with us. It was loads of fun. Thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun being on the show. And remember, listeners, Unifer the Pure is still alive, and she is watching you. I'm terrified. <laughs> you and me right. both. All right. Yeah, it's playing out. We're good clean a clean 90 minutes love it oh.